Welcome to episode 90, yes, you heard that right, 9-0, of District of Conservation. I am your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This week, I'm going to take you guys on a little journey explaining some very interesting updates, both positive, some negative, and then some really heartwarming because a lot has actually broken out in the news uh, from a judicial standpoint, from a federal standpoint, and something that's kind of reassuring, especially in this time of COVID. So I have three updates for you that I think you're going to find interesting and compelling, and I'm going to do my best to explain it to you as concisely and clearly as possible. But before I dip into that today, I want to let you guys know that I just found out that I won Trout Unlimited's Responsible Recreation Social Media Contest in terms of coming in third place. I didn't outright win it, but I did come in third place, and I see that the third place winner will receive a new pair of Costa sunglasses, some Yeti tumbler, I think a 10-ounce one, and a really cool beanie. So I apparently won that unbeknownst to me. I didn't even know I entered it, but I guess if you engage in the social media hashtag, you were entered into it. And I won because I guess they liked what I had to say here on the podcast about their campaign that they have partnered with with other conservation organizations. So that was really cool to find out and uh, share with you all. But here are the three issues I would like to discuss with you all today on the podcast. Some good news to begin this week with is the fact that suppressor exportation is now legal. And suppressors are supposedly controversial And they're scary and public perception of them is not really positive because Hollywood has done a great number to really misrepresent their utility, their function, and just aspects of it. And suppressors, if you guys don't know, they're not silencers because they do not silence your shooting experience. On average, actually, suppressors uh, lower things by about 30 decibels. On average, it also helps reduce noise pollution. And if you're hunting, especially, that can come in handy, especially if you're in an urban area and you're hunting in permitted regions. And also for your shooting experience, there's a lot less recoil. But I want to also talk at length about why this is a good development. And the National Shooting Sports Foundation and also the American Suppressor Association both are applauding this. And I'm reading from a blog post from the NSSF about why they applaud this move. And it reads, NSSF, the Trade Association for the Firearm Industry, lauded the decision of the U.S. Department's Directorate of Defense Trade Controls, DDTC, to rescind the 2002 policy that blocked the export of firearm suppressors to overseas markets. NSSF has championed the effort to remove the policy, which has only harmed U.S.-based suppressor manufacturers. Here's a quote. This is a common-sense decision to allow U.S. manufacturers to compete in overseas markets where suppressors are not only legal, but are often required for recreational shooting and hunting, said Lawrence Keene. NSSF Senior Vice President and General Counsel. And he continued by saying, this is another win for the firearm and suppressor manufacturers by the Trump administration. Earlier this year, the Trump administration finalized the U.S. munitions list to commerce control list transition, streamlining the export process for firearms. That was an export reform years in the making and only held up for domestic political reasons. U.S. manufacturers, domestic production, and U.S. workers will all benefit from this practical decision. 
The DDTC noted it will handle suppressor exports in a manner consistent with other USML-controlled technologies. Consistent with current licensing practices, all licenses will be reviewed and adjudicated on a case-by-case basis, and any pre-license checks or post-shipment verifications will be conducted as deemed necessary and appropriate based on the totality of the circumstances of the transaction. Standard staffing protocols within the department and interagency will be applied as required. I will have that in the show notes for you all. And also because uh, firearms manufacturers and accessory companies were listed as essential businesses by the Department of Homeland Security, it's no surprise to see this measure come afoot because these businesses and their operations have been listed as essential, especially during the coronavirus. And the American Suppressor Association applauded this move per their Instagram, and here's what they said. For over six years, the American Suppressor Association has worked to legalize the commercial exportation of suppressors to existing markets abroad. Yesterday, the Trump administration announced that U.S. manufacturers can now sell to commercial markets internationally effective immediately. The administration's actions will increase American export and create hundreds of American jobs. Special thanks to at real Donald Trump for your leadership on this issue. And this issue actually was decided on about two days ago. So this is fairly new. I believe a lot of the industry is applauding this. Like I said, it goes along the line of how essential this type of operation is. And maybe because of this, because of increased demand for our products abroad, we will be able to hopefully deregulate suppressor use here, like I mentioned earlier in this segment. So I think this is a really good update from the State Department. It's good for American commerce, the free enterprise system, and As you guys know, the reason why I talk about firearms here on the podcast, not simply because I like them and I'm an enthusiast and a pretty good defender of the Second Amendment, but every time you buy guns and ammunition, those excise taxes on those goods go back to conservation through the Pittman-Robertson Act. The next update I have for you guys is unfortunately not positive for true conservation efforts. If you've been following this podcast pretty early on, I have largely dedicated a lot of airtime to discussing the greater Yellowstone ecosystem grizzly bear, which is now at relatively healthy numbers, according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Under this administration, also the previous administration across Democrat and Republican administrations. But there is a setback to delisting efforts because the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in the favor of environmentalists and preservationists that will not permit future delisting efforts to happen right now. I think delisting can happen, uh, but as of right now, unfortunately, there are there's this huge roadblock with this latest ruling uh, that builds up upon the Montana federal judge's ruling in September 2018. So here's what the New York Times, which was reprinted by the Star Tribune, says about this. Those 700 or so grizzly bears around Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks are safe, at least for now. A federal appeals court in San Francisco ruled this past week that the bears living in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which includes 34,000 square miles in parts of Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, will remain federally protected under the Endangered Species Act. The decision, issued Wednesday by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, affirmed a 2018 district court ruling that required the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to put grizzly bears back on the endangered species list after the agency removed them in 2017. The ruling means it is still illegal to hunt grizzly bears for sport in the designated area. 
The issue has been a source of contention and lawsuits for more than a decade. In her decision, Judge Mary Schroeder echoed the district court's ruling, delisting the grizzly bears failed to consider the long-term genetic effects on the other grizzly bear populations across the country, she wrote. The court also ruled the Fish and Wildlife Service to, quote, conduct a comprehensive review, end quote, of the remnant grizzly population. While this is a huge legal setback, and frankly, it is very disappointing to see that these entities like Earth Justice, Sierra Club, Defenders of Wildlife, who have nothing to do in those regions, come in and wreak havoc. And I'm going to be very blunt about this, but they come in and they wreak havoc and they're backed by millions of dollars and they're judging their assumptions and they're basing justification to keep a fully recovered population of the grizzly bear on the Endangered Species Act list because that's the only way that they can fundraise because in the court of public opinion, when people actually see what these groups are up to, they're going to be very dismayed that they are playing with fire when it comes to the Endangered Species Act. If you guys aren't already aware, only 3% of listed threatened or endangered species have actually been recovered since the ESA first became law in 1973. What the hell is the law doing if it is not leading to further delisting and successful recovery of animals. I don't believe you should eliminate the law because there's no way you can do that. I think that's an extremist view, but I think the law needs to be modernized so that we have more than 3% of species being delisted and then being successfully recovered. But we're going to see these serial litigants continue to use the courts to play politics with wildlife management and wildlife science when they're the ones who are not rooted in science. They're not basing their opinions in science. They're being handed victories and true conservation efforts are facing more setbacks. Now there are efforts in Congress to modernize the Endangered Species Act. Recently, they haven't really made any movement except for the Western Caucus, but people in Congress have to get serious, Democrats especially, about not playing politics with the Endangered Species Act. And there are both Democrats and Republicans who have indicated that they do want to modernize the Endangered Species Act. But until that happens, we're going to unfortunately see these rulings being handed down. And I hope that the Fish and Wildlife Service and their co-signees and other litigants that they were working with, that they do take this issue to the Supreme Court. Maybe it's going to be given better consideration because they're going to be presented with more evidence pointing to the fact that this grizzly bear is fully recovered. And if this bear is not managed by a highly regulated hunt, and I know that's very controversial, I personally would never hunt a grizzly bear, but I have talked to many people. I've spoken to many people. I've listened to testimony from wildlife agencies and wildlife experts, especially wildlife biologists in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And they say that a managed hunt can help tackle this issue. And what people fail to understand that a managed hunt is not going to decimate the herd. Whenever this determination is made as to how many bears can be culled, it's very minimal. I think when it came to Wyoming's hunt, they decided that up to 23 grizzly bears or perhaps two females, if they were to be successfully harvested, that hunt, this contentious hunt that was blocked by this Montana judge in September of 2018, this hunt would have helped coal problem bears and hunting is not the end all be all. I've talked to Joe Candilas on two occasions here on the podcast that not only does hunting a really highly regulated hunt of the grizzly bear in that small contained region help 
wildlife biologists and help game wardens and others who help manage the species and also remove burdens on landowners, ranchers, farmers. But mitigating human bear conflicts, especially hunters who go bear hunting, involving them, having them as being stakeholders is extremely important. But despite this legal setback, I hope to goodness this case is heard before the Supreme Court. And we're going to continue to talk about this because many people believe assigning anthropomorphic qualities to animals is how you get people to care about wildlife science. And that's extremely dangerous to do that. I respect bears. I like bears. I have a huge reverence for them, even though I do support the managed hunting of them, whether it is from the traditional black bear, which is pretty common. And in Virginia, they highly encourage us to help cold numbers because there are many here and they determined that you can hunt them to help manage them and keep them prosperous and healthy. And even to the more controversial grizzly bear hunting, which that type of hunt will help that region a lot. But I think ESA modernization needs to take place. I hope this case moves to the Supreme Court and I hope the people out West do not get deterred and that they talk to people like me and tell their story because it is so important that people understand the conflicts that are going to continue to arise if this population isn't properly managed and if people continue to ignore the determinations from both Democrat and Republican fish and wildlife agencies that this strain of grizzly bear has successfully recovered, is very healthy, and needs to have ESA protections removed. The two aforementioned topics are quite heavy and I was pretty passionate, but I want to end the podcast on a pretty light note talking about what is happening with respect to ICAST. So the country's, if not the world's largest recreational fishing trade show, ICAST, which always is held in Orlando annually around this time, has been moved online. So right now it is ICAST online and it is actually quite more accessible to people, consumers, media members, interested parties, uh, now that it has been moved online. And it, if you guys don't already know, it is hosted by the American Sport Fishing Association, or ASA, which is a Alexandria, Virginia-based nonprofit organization. And I have gone to ICAST, actually, on two previous occasions. I went the first time in July of 2017 with my friend Debbie Hansen award-winning outdoor rider and freshwater fishing guide out of Southwest Florida. And I returned again that following summer in summer of 2018. I skipped it last year uh, because I was just very busy and had a lot going on. And obviously with this year being the coronavirus around the time ICAST would take place, I really wasn't planning any conferences this year. But I want to talk briefly about what people who are interested in ICAST can do to participate or perhaps follow along if they're registered and talk more about this and why this is a meaningful conference and trade show that you ought to consider attending. Now I'm reading from in fisherman and here's the gist about this year's ICAST conference quote with ICAST online ASA will continue to bring people and products together, said ASA President Glenn Hughes. This July, retail buyers, media, and all show attendees will connect with product experts, manufacturing sales teams, and other industry professionals to see and learn about the latest products in the fishing industry, as well as engage on issues that matter most to our industry, all online from their home or office, end quote. The virtual trade show will take place July 13th today until 17th. 
and will offer virtual booths where exhibitors will showcase their products and services, host virtual press conferences, schedule live and on-demand product demonstrations, set up virtual meetings with buyers and media, engage in live chat, and much more. For the first time, the general public will be able to check out the newest tackle and fishing products for the coming year by way of iCast Online. Another quote, all anyone has to do is find the website iCastFishing.org and click on the banner to access the site, said ASA spokeswoman Mary Jane Williamson last week, explaining how online attendees will be able to, quote, visit, end quote, exhibitor booths and check out new product offerings for 2020 and 2021. What they say is also new this year is iCast Online will also include the always popular new product showcase, best of category, and best of show voting and awards. So check that out at iCastFishing.org if you want to check out the latest in fishing gear and tackle. That is really cool, and it's very neat that they're opening it up to the public this year. So if you get a chance, I'm going to try my best to clue myself into what is trending and happening there when I'm not busy this week. I have a busy week this week, so I don't think I can catch everything. But I wanted to let you guys know about that and to point you into that direction if you're curious to see what's happening in recreational fishing. Thank you for listening to District of Conservation. If you had any questions about today's topics, don't hesitate to ask and reach out. I'm happy to answer any questions. And as always, you can refer to the show notes to see where I derived my monologue from. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat and to check out guest announcements or topic discussions coming up. If you have Apple Podcasts, be sure to subscribe there download some episodes, and leave us a review if you feel inclined. And you can find us on Spotify, Google Play, and other podcast platforms out there. Stay tuned as we bring on more guests, have more compelling discussions and debates, and discuss what is trending in hunting, fishing, and shooting sports. Thank you for listening, and I will check back with you guys next Monday. Take care.